G'day, everybody. Welcome to the 42 Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Nural Chakchatin. She is an award-winning microbiologist from University of Technology, Sydney. Today, we speak about honey, the various types of honey, including that magical Manuka honey, the science and the pseudoscience. We also speak about the gut, the microbiome, and all the awesomeness that is current research in that field. Should we only eat meat or should we only consume plant-based products? It was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I've learned so much and I hope you learn heaps as well. So here it is. Hi, Neural. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> so there are lots of questions, but I think the best way to start off with is talking about your research. What is your research on? So I'm a microbiologist and I love understanding how bacteria cause different infections and disease and also how they can contribute to our health. And this is what got me interested in my research specialty, which is looking at the medicinal uses and properties of honey. Honey, that it's such a, is it a condiment? It's not a condiment. Uh, it's something we all use. Uh, I didn't realize up until I started doing research it's not as simple as I thought it was. Explain to me, like, there isn't a type of honey. Like, although it's like when you use the term drugs, that means a plethora of different things. Is honey like that? It is a little bit like that. So there are lots of different types of honey, and it all depends on the flowers that the bees visit to collect the nectar that they turn into honey. So a lot of the time when you go to the supermarket next, you'll see that there's different names for different honeys. You'll have yellow box honey, you'll have stringy bark honey, you'll have manuka oh. honey. Those names actually refer to the plant or the floral species that the honey is derived from. So when uh, talking about the stuff at a supermarket, are they fundamentally different to some some somebody who say, you know, this is organic or something we could buy at a market? Or is it is commercially... Uh, produced honey different? It's a good question and it's one that I think a lot of people are aware of and you know we're always trying to get locally sourced honeys or ingredients or foods to eat. Uh, in Australia our commercial beekeepers are very stringent so we have a really good beekeeping practice so the ones that you get in the supermarket as long as they're 100% Australian honey you can be sure that you're getting the best produce. Oh. Um, Personally, I like to get my honey straight from the beekeepers, but I'm very fortunate. I'm very privileged. Right. I have access to lots of beekeeping contacts. And the reason is I just like to learn about their beekeeping practices. I like to learn about the different flowers that are in season around their hives. Um, I just love learning about bees and honey in general. So I like to try lots of different types from all over, all over the country. So whenever I visit new places, the one thing that I'll always come back with is a jar of their local honey, just because there's such a, right. an enormous amount of honey out there and flora out there in Australia that has such a unique taste. Wow. So in your research, what's the most, I mean, I'm assuming, uh, you know, you've been in this field for almost a decade, but what's the most interesting thing or the surprising thing, the, you know, research you, you came across? So I work in two main areas when we talk about medicinal honey. One part of it is looking at how we can use honey like an antibiotic, so to treat infections and disease. And the way that it works is by killing bacteria because it's got these really incredible antibacterial properties. Uh, we've known about that for a long time, so it, there's, there's lots of records of its use as an antibiotic. 
uh, throughout all of history and every culture that's come in contact with honey has used it as a medicine in some sort. I think probably in that respect, the most exciting thing that we found is the reason that it's such a popular medicine and that we continue to use it is bacteria have never learned to fight against those effects. So we've all heard of antibiotic resistance now. That's when bacteria start to fight against the drugs that are designed to kill them, the antibiotic drugs. But even though honey's been used for thousands of years, we don't see that happening. And we're really interested in knowing why that is. So that's one part of it. The other part of the research I do is lots of people don't buy honey to use as an antibiotic. They buy it as a food that they're eating. And we know that our gut is home to trillions and trillions of bacteria and other microbes. So we're really interested in understanding, does eating honey affect those microbes? Not necessarily as an antibiotic, but does it work in any other way? For example, can it work as a prebiotic food? Which means it's, can it be a food that boosts the beneficial populations of bacteria living in our gut? So they're the two main areas that I work in. Um, And they're very different applications, obviously. One's designed to kill certain bacteria that we don't want in our bodies or the environment. And then the other one is to boost the populations that we do want. And it's effective in both those respects. Right. With regards to sort of probiotics, it's a, last I checked, it's like a $35 billion global industry. And it's generally part of um, sort of, the alternative medicine world. Um, and it's not an area that is governed really well. Does How how does that affect your research? Because, you know, people generally associate it with as, well, it's alternative medicine. I mean, I, I think that that statement in itself is a, is a strange one because if it is medicine, it's medicine. If it's alternative, it's not medicine. So how does that impact your research? It does hugely. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that I face in this field is a lot of people have heard honey as, you know, one of those folklore remedies or something that their grandmothers used to do um, or tell them to do. And there's not much real science behind some of those alternative medicines. And it does have negative connotations for the honey work that we do. Absolutely. But if we can apply really robust, rigorous science to it and show that actually it works really well in these certain conditions, it's not just a panacea that cures every single yes. disease or you know condition. It's, it's very targeted uses for specific things and the science proves that. That's what we really need See, to I, focus on. I want to I wanna dig deep uh, into this. Just researching this, I found that honey reduces cholesterol, cures cold, uh, cures gut issues, reduces stress, it's anti-aging, uh, helps with weight loss, reduces blood sugar, good for allergies, great for sports performances, helps with sore throat, helps sleep, and also cures cancer. I mean, so this yeah. sounds just bonkers. It sounds like a superfood, hey? <laughs> right? I mean, the moment when you have something that is all-encompassing, yeah. for me at least, and, and, and for a lot of people who sort of like uh, reason and, you know, like science-based approaches, like there is no way all of that is true. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for an average person, how do we figure out, uh, as you said, you're obviously doing real science, so there are some real applications. So how do we figure out what is true and what is not? Yeah, it's really hard because I think once you show that, specifically in honey, once you show that it does work for something, then a lot of people jump on that bandwagon and they're like, well, if it works for this, I've also heard that it does all of these other things, so they must also be true. Right. And it's such a misinformed 
concept. But I think as a society, we're getting much better about mm. researching things ourselves and one source or one media report or one online blog or whatever it is that you read is not really enough to convince a lot of people. So in terms of honey, there is some really good research showing that it does have antibacterial activity, but only use if you use it in a certain way. Right. So that antibacterial activity really is most effective for topical applications. That means it needs to come in contact with your skin. Right. Things like wounds, burns, ulcers, skin infections, that's where we would use the antibacterial activity. When we eat the honey, we lose a lot of that antibacterial activity. Right. And a lot of people don't realise that. So if you've got a sore throat, then yes, the honey will work to help soothe that sore throat because it comes in contact again with the microbes that are causing the sore throat. But once it passes through our digestive tract, when it hits the stomach and then in the small intestine, a lot of those antibacterial properties are lost or absorbed in our body. So they're not likely to have a, a bigger systemic effect. When we eat the honey, though, something else kicks in, and that's that prebiotic activity. So honey has are these complex sugars that we don't digest ourselves. And that means that it can reach the lower part of our digestive tract, the colon, where it comes in contact with our gut bacteria. And our gut bacteria can use these complex sugars to really boost the beneficial populations and also start to produce beneficial compounds that we know have protective effects against a whole range of different diseases. So it's, it's about understanding you know, what the science is saying. And I know it's really hard, but if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. There are certain things, like I said, that we know it works for. We know it has wound healing activity. We know that it has anti-inflammatory activity. And we know that it can have antioxidant activity as well. But things like it's going to cure cancer or it helps with weight loss or it helps with hair growth or what all those other things where there aren't scientific links or studies associated with those claims, we really need to question, you know, why yeah. they're included and why people think that that's the case. Researching this, uh, I, I think I may have found some of the answers. I think media ha plays a huge role in this. I had the unfortunate, uh, um, uh, well, I had to watch Dr. Oz to do some research. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, I, we joke around it, like Dr. Oz, there's a massive uh, Facebook page by somebody by the name of David Avocado Wolf. Um, and there are videos with millions and millions and millions of views perpetuating these sort of magical properties of it. I think, you know, in today's age where people get their information through social media uh, or, you know, mainstream television, and when you have very influential people talking about honey the way that we, we, we've been talking about, that does have an impact. And then, you know, like news as well will find a piece of research and then they'll just go, it'll just add to the whole machine. Absolutely. I think so. So what you're basically saying is individual research is... I think, yeah, we do need to take it upon ourselves a little bit to do some research into what it is that we want to use it for and if it's going to have that beneficial effect. Uh, in terms of the media, I think part of it is our responsibility as scientists as well to make sure we get out and tell the public what our research is saying. And that's why I always do try and reach out, do outreach, you know, do public lectures to say this is what our research shows. And I'm confident that this is good science and we've got the claims to back, we've got the evidence rather to back up these claims. Um, and a lot of media reporters now do reach out to the right people, the people who are actually doing the research to say, what do you think about this? So there is a lot of, can we distinguish between the science and the snake oil 
happening and that kind of journalism happening as well. Of course, we can't control yeah, of course. everything out yeah, that's there. True. But part of it is we need to get out and get the right messages out there as scientists. And as consumers, we should really be thinking about looking at multiple sources. So just because a celebrity endorses it, what qualifications do they have? And why is it that we're gravitating towards that person to give us health advice or med medical advice when we know that there are probably better sources? So uh, I want to talk about the gut, but I'll get to that. I want to stay with honey for a little bit longer. Um, we spoke about like with this different type of honeys. Before this podcast, I thought there was only two types. There's honey and there's manuka honey, which is this it's magical superfood that everyone's going on about. And I watched the, this episode of Dr. Oz talking about it. It is just extraordinary. Again, for me, alarm bells ring. I'm like, is it? What do you mean? And I found out just talking to you earlier that people pay, what, $200 plus for a little bit of honey? I'm, I'm, what? Yes. <laughs> Why is Manuka honey such a, a big deal? So Manuka honey can be very extraordinary. Uh, it's it's very unique. It's from the Manuka plant, and this plant grows in New Zealand and all around Australia as well. So we've got lots of different names for Manuka in Australia. We call it jelly bush, goo bush, sometimes tea tree. The scientific name for the plant is leptospermum. So any honey that comes from this leptospermum plant uh, has the potential to have this extra level of antibacterial activity. And it comes from a specific chemical that's found in the nectar of these manuka flowers that the bees pick up and they leave in the honey. And over time, that chemical develops into this active ingredient that gives it a really strong antibacterial activity. And that's what that's why the buzz about manuka. Uh, the thing is, not all manuka honeys will have that high level of activity. There's different there are versions different, yeah, of there manuka are honey as well? Oh, okay. So you'll notice this next time you go into a health food store or a chemist. If you look at manuka honey, they'll have different ratings. So some of them will have a percentage or a plus, sort of like the SPF rating right, on right, sunscreen. Right, right. Yeah. The higher the number, the more active it is. That's the antibacterial activity. Some of them will have a number with MGO on the end or MG. And that MGO refers to that chemical that that active chemical, the ingredient, and that's methyl glyoxal. So again, the higher the number, the more potent and antibacterial it is. Now, the issue with that kind of labeling is that if we use lots of different systems, the numbers don't become comparable. So if you've got one that says MGO 83, it sounds like a big number. And then you've got one that says non-peroxide activity or manuka activity of 20, you think, oh, that's lower than 83. So this one's better. It doesn't correlate directly right, right. in that way. So you can't compare one number to the other. The MGO definitely influences that activity, that percentage or that plus rating, but it's not a one-to-one. -one. So and again, it's a it's about we need to understand what those labels mean. And it's it's a lot of pressure to put on consumers to know, oh, I know I have to know that this is a specific type of honey and then I have to know exactly I know. Just just like a few minutes ago we were talking about just understanding honey. Now exactly. I have to understand a type of honey exactly. and the variations of that. Exactly. So my understanding was Manuka is a New Zealand honey, but Manuka exists in Australia as well. So what does that mean? Is that purely the fact that you know, um, a commercial activity or just the mass production of honey from one country that has then sort of, you know, this is the honey from this place. Thus, uh, it's sort of a broad label for everything. So Manuka honey 
is famous for being from New Zealand and they've had they've done a lot of really good science behind their product and a lot of good marketing as well. Uh, they in New Zealand the Manuka name comes from the Maori language uh, too and that's the name that they refer right. to the plant. Uh, Manuka, from what we know, the plant itself, the leptospermum plant, actually originated in Australia. So we've got the exact same species that's in New Zealand that originated in Tasmania, and it grows in the southern part of Victoria and South Australia as well. We've also got over 80 different species of leptospermum growing all around the country in Australia. So we have this huge untapped resource, essentially. Why aren't we? Why aren't we going manuka all, honey? Why aren't we going all out and in Australian manuka honey? That's what we're trying to do ah, now. Right, so it's okay. it's trying to figure out: Are we? Do we have the same species? Yes, we do. Is it just as active? Yes, it is. And what about all these other 80 plus varieties? Do they all have this same special activity? And it turns out that, yes, some of them do. We actually have quite a few of these species that are very highly active. Uh, the activity is very stable. So even after long term storage, we've tested something like seven years of storage. That activity doesn't change. So when you think about it as an antibiotic, it's it's got incredible potential, actually, because you just put it in your shelf, forget about it for seven years, come back and it's still just as active. You can't really do that with the pills or the drugs True. that we have. Right. And if you're in a remote or you know rural type area where you don't really have access to medical resources, it's an incredible medicine to have. So we, we do that kind of research. We're trying to figure out is it the species that makes it active? So are there certain manuka species or leptospermum species that are more active than others? Are there geographical hotspots? And yeah, there are. Geography does affect it. But there's probably a whole suite of other conditions as well, environmental, storage, processing conditions that all affect this level of activity. So that's what we're trying to piece together now with this Australian leptospermum honey. Right. Uh, I want to talk about bees a bit more. Um, so I personally have been a vegetarian with a lactose issue for a little while. So I, I don't necessarily call myself a, a vegan, but I have a, a reasonable amount, a number of friends who are vegan. Um, they don't consume honey because it's an animal product. And some of them have, have claimed that they have ethical issues uh, with regards to bees and beekeepers. Um, is that a valid concern or is that a misguided concern? I think in terms of a personal choice, if they don't consume it because it's an animal product, that's it's a totally personal choice and I've got no issue at all with that. Uh, in terms of the beekeeping practices, I think there seems to be this negative connotation that beekeeping is just like bee farming and farming in the negative sense where you know we've got masses of bees that are being abused and we're just constantly stealing their honey but i work with so many beekeepers both from the commercial scale so really you know thousands and thousands of hives to hobbyist and amateur beekeepers as well who only have a few hives um, and everyone that I've met, they they love their bees. They don't want their bees to be sick. They do it because they love it. It's not just a money-making scheme for them. And they really look after their bees well. And I think when we people are really concerned about, you know, the, the safety and health of bees because we know that bees are dying around the world. But if we don't have these beekeepers who are very experienced and who know how to look after their hives and look out for diseases and be able to pinpoint when their hive is sick, how will we save the bees, right? If we can't tell that they're sick, if we don't have these beekeepers and we lose that whole practice, we won't be able to have these healthy managed bees that we know are essential for our food production because 
bees pollinate something like two-thirds of all the food that we consume. So is there already an existing danger that, obviously, we've heard about the fact that bees are dying. Is there an existing uh, problem with bee farmers not uh, uh, having enough demand for honey? Or is it, you know, uh, you said that they play such a crucial role. Is, is, it, is it an existing problem that there's, there isn't enough bee farmers? The beekeeping does seem to be a dying trade. So a, a lot of beekeepers um, are in the older generations and they want to pass down this knowledge, but there's just not that much interest in beekeeping uh, on a commercial scale because it doesn't necessarily, it's not sustainable in terms of financial returns. Right. So I think part of the work that we're doing is to try and promote the value of honey as both a health food and as a medicine, because we can see that that has a direct impact on the beekeeping industry, which we know, like you said, is crucial for our food security. Um, there are the reason that bees are dying around the world is very complex. And, you know, I don't research the bee health space, but of course I liaise with so many people that do. And it seems to be, it's not just one issue, it's a multitude of issues. So it's things like pesticides, it's things like a poor understanding of bee health or inexperienced beekeeping. Uh, it can be access to floral resources. So a lot of uh, the Australian commercial beekeepers need access to national parks and public lands to get all those beautiful eucalypts that their bees can be foraging on. And if they don't have access to those places, where do the bees get their food? Right. So there, there are lots of complex issues. Um, and there was this uh, series on Netflix called Rotten, which you may have watched. And I watched the Cowboys and Bees episode of that one. Right. But they talked about the dangers of pollination and in, in particular almond pollination. So we know that almonds are a hugely uh, popular food at the moment, almond milk and all sorts of things that you can do with almonds. And almonds are pollinated by bees. So what happens during almond pollination season is thousands of beekeepers around the country all come together in this almond orchard. And you can imagine that's that's very many, hundreds and hundreds of hives, right, that are all in close contact with each other. If one of those hives has a sick colony, then there's a potential to wow. make lots of those hives sick. And if we don't know how to look out for those diseases, then how will we know that the bees are getting sick? And when we take them back to our, our own house and you look around at the bees, you know, that the, that sick hive is now coming in contact with, it could be this flow on effect. So that's one of the main messages that came out of this series. And people are very aware now wow. that this, you know, pollination is something that we should be looking at and we should be thinking seriously about how we can monitor the health of our bees and our beehives. Wow, that's fascinating. I had no idea. For some reason, you know, farming, you know, bee farming, for some reason in my head it was like, well, I think part of uh, the farmers, they don't not only have the bees, they probably have a separate area just for the flowers. It's like, you know, the grazing lands, yeah, for, you know, not, but it doesn't work like it's that. It's not at all like <laughs> what we think farming is like. Yeah, Beekeepers right. have a very, it's very challenging. They have to move where the the plants are flowering, right? They have to make wow. sure that their bees have an adequate source of nectar, which is their carbohydrate source. But also they need to make sure that the flowers that are growing in that area also are rich in pollen, which is the bee's protein source. So beekeepers need to be very in tune with what their colonies wow. need. Wow, that's, uh, I, that's, that's fascinating. And I have a feeling a lot of people are just learning that. Um, okay, so I want to talk about 
the probiotic that we were talking about just earlier, uh, which leads to the gut. So the research in this area, it's it's gotten a lot of attention recently. What do we know about our gut that we didn't know five years ago? So before we start on that section, you say probiotic. And when I talk about honey, I say Prebiotic. prebiotic. So okay. I just want to talk yeah. a little bit about let's, that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Uh, because I think probiotics, many people are familiar with them. So probiotics are living bacteria, living good beneficial bacteria that we consume. So they can be in things like those fermented milks, uh, in capsules and supplements. So what they do is offer one large hit of good bacteria to the gut at a time. Now, when I talk about honey, I talk about its prebiotic activity. And prebiotics are foods that we don't digest ourselves but they reach our gut where they can be used as a food source by our gut bacteria. So it's basically feeding what we already have inside of us. So if you're taking a probiotic with a prebiotic, you're feeding not only what you've got inside of you, but also these millions and millions of new beneficial bacteria that you're eating. So there's a lot of research that's been done on probiotics, but like you said, it's not necessarily um, regulated when it comes out as a final product. So if it's safe to consume, there's the regulation around it is a little bit lacking, I think. Um, And you can get, you know, yogurts and cereals and a whole bunch of things with probiotic cultures. The issue is... Kombucha. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The issue is we don't know how long those probiotics will survive or if they will even colonize in our gut. So the effects, you might see an immediate effect, but once you stop taking them, it's likely that that effect will wear off very quickly. And part of it is that we all have such a different gut microbiome or that environment of microbes that lives in our gut. We don't know exactly what we'll take. You know, so if you're introducing a new probiotic, is it just getting flushed out the next time you go to the toilet? Or is there some longer effect where that probiotic bacteria can actually colonize in your gut? Um, We don't know if it will survive the entire digestive process. So are they even reaching the gut alive or are they being destroyed somewhere in the stomach or earlier on? So there's, there's some research that still needs to be done in that space, which is why I think there is such an interest in these prebiotic foods, things that are fiber rich, uh, vegetables that have these complex sugars, complex carbohydrates, also known as oligosaccharides. So there are lots of new products now coming out that claim to be prebiotic foods that can really boost your the microbiome that you already have. So you, you don't necessarily have to introduce external bacteria in there. So it's still it's still a changing field. I think mm-hmm. just in the last five years, we were talking about this before as well. There have been thousands and thousands of new papers showing, you know, this is what a healthy gut should look like. And these are the things that we should be targeting. Here are the foods that we should be eating. Uh, We know that diet definitely does influence our microbiome, but we're still trying to figure out exactly what a healthy gut looks like. Because something that looks like a healthy gut in one person might not necessarily be the same in another person. Yeah, so this is, uh, personally for me, I've had IBS for like three years and it is utterly frustrating. I'm trying every single thing and I'm not really going anywhere. You just mentioned uh, it's in, 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 you know, prebiotic and probiotic, they're, they're two different things. And you mentioned plethora of studies. I found one which I found, like I did not know this is, because my understanding, this is about probiotics. My understanding is, because as you said, it's not necessarily regulated, but it doesn't really harm, uh, so it's it's fine. 
But then I found this study, which I, I'll tell you what they found. So they got a group of people, they divided into three groups, and they all went through an endoscopy and a colonoscopy to get their baseline microbiome. Um, and they were all given antibiotics for a period of time. And they were checked again after two months to see how their microbiome is. Group one, they were just given the antibiotics, nothing else. Um, gr group two were given probiotics. And group three, they were given a fecal microbiota transplant. Uh, and this was using their own fecal matter before the study. Now, the results, which I thought was fascinating, was the first group to recover fully were the well, group three, uh, the people who had the transplant, followed by the people who had nothing. The people who had probiotics took months to recover. And the conclusion is the probiotic colonization prevented the host's normal microbiome and the gut gene expression profile from returning to their normal state for months afterwards. Contrary to the current dogma that probiotics are harmless and benefit to everyone, these results reveal a new potential adverse side effect. I was like, that's the thing? That's incredible, isn't it? Right? I, I think definitely the, the transplant result doesn't surprise me because, and this is a relatively new area where people are talking about reconstituting or re-engineering the gut microbiome by taking stool samples or, you know, fecal matter from a healthy person and then seeing if we can get that to colonize in a compromised gut. Um, and I think the reason that it has so much potential is when you think about that ecosystem of microbes, they're all living in some kind of a balance, right? So if you knock one out or if you're really trying to boost the population of one, you're changing that balance and it takes a longer time for that balance to recover and equilibrate itself. So I think, you know, if you're introducing a whole community that you know works together, they've got a much better chance of survival. Right. And I think that's why there is that push for prebiotics rather than probiotics, right. because you're boosting that balance of bacteria that you've already got living inside your gut. The probiotics study does surprise me. I didn't think it would have negative side effects, but I guess if you think about it, you're targeting one very specific species of bacteria there. So you're trying to boost those, but the other balance can't really regenerate itself. So... so this brings an interesting point. See, again, uh, people go vegetarian slash vegan for various number of reasons. You have studied our gut for a long time. Some people claim that we are really programmed to, our gut is really the program and our stomach is really there to consume meat. And some vegans will say, no, it is really, we were really never supposed to eat meat. What do you see? What, what does the science say? Is it clear? I think the jury's still out. I think really? there are so many factors now. So diet is just one of the things that can influence our microbiome, but it's, it's a whole range of things that can influence it. So it's our general lifestyle habits, how much you exercise, how much water you have, and, you know, our hygiene as well. So if you're taking antibiotics, that has a huge effect on our microbiome. So it doesn't really matter whether you eat meat or... Not uh, that I've seen. And yeah. there might be people who are specifically doing research comparing mm -hmm. these two diets, again, because I'm in a very <laughs> specialized field. Sure. But diet is one of the things. But if it was just as easy as if you cut out meat, you'll have a perfect microbiome, that would probably be the message that we were hearing. Right. right? So I think case. it is just such a complicated thing. Um, we know that different diets definitely create different microbiomes, because when you look at studies where they're done in certain countries that have a very specific type of diet, they've got a specific type of microbiome. So, you know, there are studies that come out of um, Japan looking at the Japanese 
diet and they've got certain types of bacteria that can break down seaweed that we might not have here in Australia. And again, it's just the way that their microbiome has evolved with their diet to recognize these main foods and, you know, digest those. Right. If you were to advise somebody with uh, you know, sort of IBS. I'm not, it's not for me. I would never. <laughs> I, I'm not that kind of doctor. No, yeah, yes, I get it. But, but from a, like all your research, would you would you say uh, that you know the off-the-shelf stuff, probiotics or prebiotics, is it? I'm assuming it's safe enough for people to consume it. If someone were to consider that, what should they look for? I would always suggest talking to your doctor before anything else. Anything. Because it's such a, like I said, it's such a complex environment and we don't know how regulated the things on the shelf are. So if they're not registered by the regulatory bodies like the Therapeutic Goods Administration here in Australia, I'd really think about what kind of potentially harmful side effects could it have. So yeah, it might, it might have a benefit and if it's something that you want to try and it seems safe enough, go for it. And I think we can sort of use our logic there, but... Definitely for something like a medical intervention, it's always best to talk to, to, the, talk doctor. to the doctor. Absolutely. And and is uh, certain uh, probiotics, they don't really last uh, on the shelf as long as some people think. Um, and I've I've heard uh, that say you know some tablets that you get out from a from a supermarket actually don't have any 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 bacteria that's active. You know, is is it is it the case? It could be. Yeah. It could be. Again, it's, it comes down to we don't really know what their survival is like. So right. in the lab, it might be really promising. And this specific strain of probiotic bacteria looks great in the lab. But as soon as we turn that into a product, what is its shelf life? Right. What is its survival rate? What happens when you swallow that capsule? Does it reach your gut or does it, you know, stop being active as soon as it hits your stomach? We don't we don't really know mm. until, you know, there's there's pro there should be proper science. And it, I think if it was a registered product by the, those regulatory bodies, they would have to show that its efficacy is what they say it is. But if it's just a product that we pick up off the shelf, it is very hard to know I what think, the effects will be. I think, uh, you know, the because of the marketing tactics of some of these, uh, you know, products, it's it's muddied the waters because I, I, I think, you know, one has to really sit down and go through the... It's a lot of details to work that out. I think that's quite challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about your gut and mental health. You mentioned earlier, what's the connection with your gut and mental health? So there are so many studies now coming out to show that our gut microbiome influences so many of our health and disease states. So there, there are things that are very obvious, like gut diseases, colon cancer, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, IBD as well, lots of things. And that makes sense because that's where yep. they start. There are also things that you wouldn't necessarily think are affected by your gut, things like allergies, asthma, you know, heart conditions. And part of it is that our immune response actually starts in our gut. So those bacteria living in our gut can trigger our immune response and help to train and develop that immune response as well. So that's, that's that connection. But there's also a direct connection between our gut and the brain the gut-brain axis. So we, we produce about 90% of our serotonin in our gut, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's where the mental health uh, argument comes from as well, to say, well, maybe our microbiome is having this direct effect on our mental health. Uh, and if we, you know, re-engineer or boost our microbiome, could we s mitigate some of those effects that we see? So it's still an active area of research. There's so right. much we don't know about the gut the system gut. yet. 
um, and so much that we are finding out with each passing day. So, yeah, right. it's, so it's, it's still a very active um, area. So, so in a way that, you know, again, I've, I've read places where to say you, your gut is like your second brain. It is, there's a lot of control it has that we are still learning. That's Absolutely. the case. Wow. Okay. I, I've never given the gut that much uh, you know, respect in that sense, but uh, it seems like it's in a lot more control than one would like to believe. What's your pet peeve when it comes to the gut, what people talk about? Is there anything? I don't think there really is a pet peeve. I think people, it's exciting for me that people are genuinely interested and they want to learn about the science because for me, it's fascinating. I love bacteria. Like yeah. I said, I love microbes. Um, so there's nothing really that's a pet peeve. Mm -hmm. I think probably one of the things that we need to change as a whole society is, is there a one-stop solution for this, a magic pill that will help this? The answer is going to be no. It's no. such a complex system that there, there won't be something that works for everybody. And I totally understand where people are coming from, where they just want something that's got good science that they know will work. But unfortunately, science just doesn't work that way. But I think we are moving towards a very personalized medicine yes. type uh, society where we've got such a better understanding of how diseases are caused, what the link is to our gut. Can we look at people's individual microbiomes and then decide what the best course of treatment is based on that population or that, you know, the overall picture and how we can improve that. And I think we are moving towards that because there's so much interest scientific and from patients and consumers and just the society that we will probably see that i think the, the i think i think the challenge is there going to be how do you figure out a business model around individualizing you know like because it's easier to mass produce something right then, absolutely you know it's going to be fascinating uh, thank you so much for taking the time i i think i've learned a lot i'm going to have more questions so you might get an email or two from <laughs> <Awesome>. me <laughs> um uh, how, how could uh, anyone find more information about your research where, where should they go so if you just look me up on google you'll be able to find a whole bunch of information on what i do so my name's Neral Chokchedin. Um, I also have a website that we put up all our honey research, mainly on the Australian honeys. It's the ozhoneyproject.wordpress.com. Uh, and I've got a whole bunch of articles and updates on our research there as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.